Welcome to Sinner Saint Sister. I'm Allison Sullivan, and this is a podcast about sometimes saving the world and sometimes just surviving in it. In the next hour or so, we will nurture our friendships, explore our joy, shake our fists, all while trying to serve our God, and most likely, all while wearing pajamas. I hope you hear something that lets you know you are loved and helps you love one another. Welcome to Sinner. lived in Japan, there was this very famous bridge that people would visit and tour and eat lunch by. It was a very picturesque Japanese scene. The cherry blossoms, the ancient architecture, the girlfriends and boyfriends having dates there. There was a tower that you could hike up to at the very top of a steep hill if you were feeling adventurous, and at night they would light this tower up. So much so that no matter where you were in the city, you could see this great light. I lived in Japan for three years, and when it was time to come back to the United States, the last night, I went back to this familiar scene to take it in one last time. And it occurred to me, for maybe the first time, what Jesus might have meant when he talked about a city on a hill in Matthew. A city on a hill, when darkness falls around us. I don't think I'm being naive when I say that Bryan College Station has potential to blaze for God's glory. I believe in us to be a city on a hill. A city requires more than just one light. We matter in a bigger story than just our own. We have to shine together, work together, speak love together in order to be a city lit up for the benefit of a kingdom. We need each other. It would be glorious if all we had to do to light up a blaze was worship God in unity, but the truth is that this world has been ravaged by sin, and among many other things, race divides us. There is so much hostility around the topic. So many people say that race doesn't matter. I was raised to treat everyone the same. I don't even notice skin color. Okay, well, if that's true, if it's really no big deal, then bring race up at Thanksgiving dinner. But you wouldn't run a brew in the holiday, right? So it does matter, and we have plenty of opinions around it. Racism is such an awful, ugly thing that we refuse to examine it. And I'm convinced that if we could just be a little kinder with ourselves, more gentle, then we could come to the truth a little easier because nothing changes until it becomes what it is. But we are so afraid of being labeled a racist that we have unexamined biases. We can't ever really get to the bottom of this issue because we refuse to really confront it. When our discomfort is so great that we refuse to engage, an enemy wins. When we dismiss the pain of our brothers and sisters because it's not our own pain or because we don't understand that pain, I am certain an enemy wins. I've reached a place in my spirituality lately where I can't keep the peace over doing what is right. It's not important to me to be blameless anymore. I want to be better. And it's only through documentaries and articles and reading and listening to people of color that I have realized that not everyone is able to move effortlessly through life without ever having to think about the color of their skin and what that might mean. It's so easy for white people to say that race doesn't matter when their race doesn't matter. I get to choose what I want to know about racism. Getting to choose when and where to speak, it's a privilege. I was born into a world where I feel like I belong, and that is no small thing. To belong. The Lord wants for us to belong, a godly belonging where we belong to each other. The Lord tells us that all tribes and tongues and nations will come together. How we are distinctive and unity containing that distinction, this is God's great plan. 
I guess if I could, I would want to encourage white people or any people really to not let defensiveness or insistence or indignance derail a conversation. Pope John Paul II said that the new charity was dialogue. I love that. Can we just be charitable and listen? We don't have to perfectly agree. We don't have to perfectly agree to be a family. We prove it every night at dinner time, but we do have to show up, preferably kind and committed. And then with the Holy Spirit, can we examine? Can we do that? Because if we could listen and learn from people of color and examine, I think we'll have a few things in place to properly lament. It's a starting place to gathering and weeping with those who weep. And if we're putting our dukes up against weeping with those who weep, it's worth an examination of conscience. I've been accused of being a chirpy optimist, but I think I'm an optimist by faith. I believe in resurrection endings, and I'm convinced that if we could just get closer to people's stories, knee to knee, not the news, you know, but knee to knee, eye to eye, I'm convinced that these stories would lead us places that we would not choose to go, and my greatest lessons have always come from the things that I don't choose. Two days after this interview with my dear friend Lisa, her African-American husband, who is one of the coaches for the university basketball team, was up early, around 4 a.m., helping a player get to practice on time by picking him up at his apartment complex. The men were pulled over for not stopping at a crosswalk in the parking lot of the complex. They were told that they looked suspicious. The police officer called for backup. They were detained for 30 minutes while they were questioned why they needed to be at the gym so early. Now, let's not let the fact that there are phenomenal, selfless, brave police officers who put their lives on the line every single day for us blur the other fact that what happened to my friend's husband is an injustice. I believe in this town to get it right. I just do. I believe in Bryan College Station being ground zero for revival. I believe the Lord is doing a new thing, and I believe in new miracles for a new moment, and I believe our town is the city on the hill blazing for all to see, blazing for his glory. Let us love one another. From the book of Acts, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke of the word of God boldly. This is my friend Lisa. She has a deep abiding hope in her God. She is well acquainted with his promises and she encourages and spurs on those around her with what she knows to be true, boldly. Lisa McKenzie. Yes. <laughs> Hi. Hey girl, <laughs> so good to be with you. I'm so glad you're here. Um, okay, we are friends. We've been friends for about a year. Yes. Has it been a year? But we dove in deep and fast. We did. We did. I feel like because of the nature of our friendship, there was a little bit of an urgency about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it yes, it is. <laughs> um, so we met at the live recording, um, the race live recording, and you came with a mutual friend. And that mutual friend was posting some mm-hmm. of her reflections after the live recording. And the comment section of that post Mm -hmm. led to a small group getting together of equal parts, white women, black women, and we are just committed 
to meeting together pretty regularly. We do a pretty good job meeting pretty regularly. We talk together. We play together. We get our families together. (laughs) Y'all were my first ever Friendsgiving. I had never had a Friendsgiving before. Okay. Um, But we try to read books together, but that's not always... Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So productive. But one of my favorite things that Jesus bought with his death is Mm -hmm. unlikely love. And so I feel like this group of people has come together um, with really good intentions. We have a lot of good intentions. And our conversations, they're not always easy. They're Mm -hmm. sometimes awkward, sometimes even a little tense. Oh, yeah. But we are committed (laughs) and we're kind. And I'm just so grateful for the group that God has put together because I don't think that we would have necessarily chosen it ourselves, but he did, and we're better for it. Yeah, and I'm grateful for you and the group as well. You know, one of the things that I love about you and your mission, this is this topic of Mm -hmm. of racial reconciliation. You know, I used the word urgent when we were first starting, Mm -hmm. but there is a fire under you on this topic and you have really led us well. Like you, I would say that easily, I think we would all easily say that you're the leader of Mm -hmm. our group and, um, I would love if you could try to explain a little bit the the urgency that you feel. Like, why is the time now? What's what's going on with you and your spirit? What's God doing with you? I feel like um, God has been stirring me um, since I left Dallas in 2016. Uh, we moved from da- from Dallas to Branson, Missouri, which was like a major cultural shift for us. And so we went from being in a a predominantly black environment to being around predominantly white people. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like um, God has really began to just minister to me and open and enlighten my eyes and help me to see that um, there is a, it's a lot, it's a lot of misunderstanding amongst cultures. It's a lot of uh, things that's not communicated, a lot of things that we're scared to talk about. Um, that lead us to pushing away from each other Mm -hmm. and lead us to um, pretty much uh, just staying within groups that we're familiar with. Absolutely. And so for me, um, it seems like everything that I try to be a part of since I left Dallas, um, I'm always in a position where I'm the only Mm African-American. And so sometimes I feel like uh, I'm in a position and in a space where I feel like I'm constantly uh, trying to assimilate and trying Mm -hmm. to adapt to uh, a culture that I'm not familiar with. Mm -hmm. And so God has ministered to me in so many ways, letting me know that this is just a season of me being uncomfortable and Mm -hmm. it's okay. Mm I've been experiencing things since I was a young girl. I see things every day. My husband sees things. And so it's like, sometimes you're just tired. Mm -hmm. And so that tiredness uh, and just seeing things day after day, it gives you a quickening in your spirit to say, Mm -hmm. I'm tired of this. Lord, um, birth something forth in my spirit that brings about change. God just divinely like brought us together. Mm -hmm. um, And I thank God for that. But it's like, I know that he's, uh, even in the midst of that, he's like still stirring my spirit. Like, Lisa, I've called you to do things. And for me, it's not a, you know, a hesitancy. It's like, okay, what is it? What is it? No, things aren't moving fast enough for you. (laughs) I'm constantly like, what do you want me to do? What do you want me Uh to do? I'm ready. Mm -hmm. So I have to kind of like slow myself down sometimes and say, Lord, okay, is it me being anxious to want to get this 
the ball going mm-hmm. or is this you driving me mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. won't let me rest mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. this um won't let me rest till i see a change you know you you know, having to integrate into majority culture, it's like yes. you are comfortable and familiar with yeah. white culture. I mean, oh, yeah. maybe comfortable is is, a, is comfortable a stretch? No, I'm comfortable. Yeah. I'm comfortable. Um, it's just sometimes you feel like you're in a position where um, people cannot relate to you or you feel like you're different from people or they just don't understand your culture. Right. Exactly. So, and that's exactly what I was going to say. It's like, yeah. you know, majority culture has the power of normal, yeah. you know, which could also be known as privilege, I guess. But, but white people don't ever have to learn about another culture if they don't yeah. choose to. Yeah. And you have been so good and patient mm-hmm. about really explaining, um, just parts of your culture that are yeah. that have been foreign to the white members of our of our small group. Um, you know, there's no easy ways to talk about race, oh, and no. so I think that there's probably a lot of re- reasons for that. But we, it's a divisive topic it is. For, for one, and it is. we come with different perspectives. We come with different experiences, and you know, a lot of times we have certain attachments to the words that we use, That's true. you know, so words can kind of make our elephants run. It's mm-hmm. like, whoa, that, you know, That's that true. kind of sent your emotions off a certain way when, mm-hmm. and, and then we might even use words wrongly and end up, you know, miscommunicating. Um, That's true. A lot of times those conversations have um, not been proven to be very fruitful. Like maybe we've been hurt mm-hmm. in those conversations before we've been burned. Um, mm-hmm. But what I love about the six of us that have, you know, committed to be together is that we show up um, eager and kind. Yeah. You know, I mean, everyone is there. What are the things that you think need to be in place in order for us to have this conversation well? Like if people, you know, were to look at the six of us and say, Mm -hmm. hey, that's a good idea. You know, maybe we should maybe we should try to do that too. What do you think needs to be in place as a non-negotiable? I feel like um, willing to come to the table with respect, mm-hmm. willing to um, have an open heart to hear um, about people's personal experiences, and not uh, judge people based on their experiences. Willing to um, understand that just because you may not have experience. Uh, something in your uh, walk in life that somebody else may have had that experience and acknowledging that it may be a really bad experience. And so for me, um, just knowing that uh, love conquers all, knowing that loving people past their pain and their hurt, because sometimes when you're speaking out of pain and hurt and experiences, you can tend to be passionate about it or upset about it. But even being able to love people past that and yeah. seeing past that pain and saying, this is really a loving person. They just have a lot, you know, that they went through or a lot of things that um, that they've had to fight through to yeah. be here. Yeah. And so willing to know that uh, people's uh, passion, the way that they speak, is not uh, di- directly like meant to hurt you or... Um, to offend you, 
just knowing that uh, coming to the table means that you're coming without an offense. My husband is, he's a diplomat in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways. He values peace. And so a lot of times if I am having an experience Mm -hmm. and I'm telling him about my experience, he will explain away my experience by saying, well, what this person probably meant was. And I feel like in a group like this, Mm -hmm. especially, I mean, he and I can, you know, we can work through that. And, but but with these you know, kind of tender or um, maybe even fragile relationships as we talk about really divisive Mm -hmm. topics. I think that what you're saying is a really good starter, starting place to be like, don't dismiss anyone's experience. Let's just listen to experiences. I think that's really, really good. So much of this is, is coming with the right posture. Yes. And I feel like, let me tell you what I've appreciated about your posture coming Mm -hmm. to to this conversation is that you have been very tolerant of where each Mm -hmm. white person is on their journey. And I feel like there's, there's a lot of allowances, which probably requires a lot of patience. Oh, it does. It does. (laughs) And I love the fact when people are just, even with yourself, just willing to hear and willing to like, I just say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry mm-hmm. for what you've gone through. Yeah. I'm sorry yeah. that you had to deal with that. Because sometimes you feel like people don't want to hear. They don't want to talk about it. It's like, oh, sweep that under the rug. Oh, that happened years ago. Oh, just forget about it. And it's like, no, you know, that really hurt. And so yeah. let's acknowledge that I was hurt. Yes. And when you acknowledge that you hurt and when somebody is able to sit down and acknowledge it with you, I feel like it makes it easier to move past it. Right. Because then it's like, okay, you know, we said yeah. it and she has, you know, listened to me and she said she's sorry that yeah. I had to go through it so that, you know, it helps me to move past Absolutely. it and helps me to say, Lord, I'm willing to, you know, strive with my sister mm-hmm. to try to... Um, Figure this out. Yeah. Figure out what's going on culturally yeah. and try to unite other people mm-hmm. through our experience. And that's what lament is. There's this beautiful quote. Yes. The last name's um, Raya. I think it's Angeli, Angela, Angeli. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll look it up. But it's Raya, I believe, is the last name. And she says, what grief craves mm-hmm. is lament. Yeah. Grief craves lament. Yeah. And I, I just think that's so beautiful to think about mm-hmm. even biblically what lament yeah. ma- means. Yeah. I mean, more than half of the Psalms are lamenting Psalms. Mm-hmm. And, and this was done very dramatically, this lament. Yes. It was done very publicly. And our culture these days doesn't seem to have much of a place for it. it and people that do want to lean in instead... Yeah. Um, are often called potsters or troublemakers oh, yeah. or complainers or oh, whiners, yeah. you know? Oh, yeah. And so if we could really carve out a space oh, yeah. um, to just lament together, I, mm-hmm. I agree with you that that is a really healthy starting place. Mm-hmm. I actually had a, a pastor's wife um, when we uh, came out here to College Station. Um, I had met up with someone for lunch, and in the restaurant she began to cry and she began to um apologize she was like i'm so sorry for what my people did to your people 
And in while she was communicating this to me, I was thinking in my head, well, you didn't do it to me. But then God had to show me sometimes we're repenting for our ancestors. Sometimes we're repenting for those who were before us. Yeah. It's not necessarily that you did anything to specifically offend me, mm-hmm. but then it might be somebody in your family line. It might be somebody in the past mm-hmm. or somebody who looked like you. Sure. And so sometimes we feel like I don't owe you an apology because I didn't do anything in particular to harm you. But then it's okay sometimes to carry like that burden you know, and, and say, you know what, I'm going to apologize for my people. Mm-hmm. I'm going to apologize for this group mm-hmm. since I belong to this group, since I look yeah. like this group. Yeah. And sometimes people don't even understand how much that lifts like a burden off mm-hmm. of you or a weight. But just for her to sit there and say that to me, it showed me her heart and mm-hmm. her spirit that mm-hmm. she, you know, she longed to be in a better place. And so I'm grateful for anybody who is just like, you know what, I just want to lean in. I want to know more. And I I want to be sincere about my conversations with you. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, one reason that I think people are, might feel averse to that apology, Mm -hmm. having not done anything themselves. (laughs) Um, You know, I didn't turn a hose on anyone. I didn't release a dog on anyone. I didn't lynch anyone. I didn't, I didn't do these things. Therefore I'm blameless. I'm not offering this. I think that one of the, the things that, that, that keep us from that leaning in or from offering an apology that you don't mm-hmm. feel like you need to is that we don't know the extent of the history. Okay. I think that mm-hmm. we, um, we don't know the, the full atrocious extent. And without that understanding, mm-hmm. it's impossible to know what needs reconciling. Okay. Like if we have, if we have only devoted a chapter of this, mm-hmm. you know, in our history class in the eighth yeah. grade or, or whatever, yeah. um, I think that it's hard to really dive into that mm-hmm. atrocious past. And when we do learn, when we make ourselves a student, you know, whether it's through books or or documentaries, um, listening to people's experiences, Mm -hmm. then that helps awaken the right emotion, which is a righteous anger and um, pain Mm -hmm. and indignation. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm convinced that, that sitting across from someone, Michelle Obama says it's hard to hate up close. Oh yeah, that's true. You know, and so to sit across from someone who has experienced Mm -hmm. something, not a while, even a long time ago today, you, 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 we sit together, the six of us, and you tell us stories that Mm -hmm. happened to you in the gym today and we are appalled and we're apologetic and we're, we're righteously angry. So I, I think one one of the ways to get in, because so we're talking about a, a right posture, right? As we get yes. into this conversation, yes. well, feeling defensive already, mm-hmm. I'm not apologizing for anything. Oh. So you're already defensive. I think a full comprehension yeah. of history mm-hmm. puts you put, puts you in that right that right posture. That's true. Um, what do you hope for our group? Like as we get even thicker relationships as our kids even grow to love one another more than they do. Silas asks about Anthony all the time. Um, (laughs) AJ. I know they already love each other. Um, I, I, I really want people to look at our group and really see the love of God. Um, how it transcends generations, uh, because and even like ages that it transcends um, ethnicities, 
um, cultural experiences, how um, you can love people beyond um, what a person looks like, what a person talks like, um, Mm -hmm. um, just to see that the love of God is real. And so um, I hope that we're able to inspire people to, to come together, to... Um, to try to be understanding, to try to um, to hear people out, to be willing to have conversations that are tough, um, uh, to be willing um, just to spend time with people and be patient with people. I hope that we inspire people to do that um, and just inspire people um, to see past where we're at right now and hope for something better mm-hmm. and greater. Mm-hmm. And I believe, uh, I, I just want to be able to bridge the gap between cultures and communities yeah. within churches to say that the love of God is so powerful and so strong, it can unite anybody. Yes. And I want people to see that when they see us. I really want them to be able to, it says uh, in scripture that the eyes are a light of, to the body. So I feel like when people look in our eyes, I want them to see that it's there is hope, there is um, love, and that God is real. Mm-hmm. You know, that he can change our mindsets. Mm-hmm. He can change our perspective mm-hmm. on life and the way we view things. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, I you know, I have so much to learn. You know, I've never been more aware that I don't know what I don't know. <laughs> and so I deeply desire to listen and learn because I feel like I've learned just enough to know that I really have no idea. So in addition to my own like selfish edification of being in our group, you know, I really believe in the power of storytelling, of getting together with friends and telling stories. And then because I feel like that facilitates redemption. Mm -hmm. When we get close to story, when we sit and, you know, the whole Michelle Mm -hmm. Obama thing, you can't hate up close. But when we get knee to knee, when we get eye to eye, it's hard. It's hard to carry biases around that way. And you know, because Christ through his death has reconciled us to God, yes. we have all been given a ministry of reconciliation. That's true. It's not optional. That's true. That is our, we, as a Christian, we are mm-hmm. about truth and unity. That is our mission. That's and true. there are a lot of different ways to do that. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really believe that this is such, um, I really feel like this is such an avenue, mm-hmm. um, you know, that race line can be so dark and deep. I really feel like this is such an avenue for reconciliation. It feels so needed right now. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, What are some other reasons that it's hard to talk about? I offered up that we don't have a full extent um, of our history unless you've really made yourself a student. Mm -hmm. Um, There's not a lot that you're going to pick up from mainstream, you know, media um, Mm -hmm. about our history. But what are some other reasons that this can be difficult? I think uh, racism can be a taboo subject because, in general, people sometimes just don't want to acknowledge that there is a problem, such as racism. And and then sometimes when you start to open Pandora's box, I'll say, and you start to reveal uh, signs of racism, sometimes you fall within some of those categories and you may feel like, Oh, that's offensive, and nope, that couldn't possibly that's be not me. me. I'm a nice person. Yes, I'm a nice person. No, just because I did this or did that doesn't mean I'm racist. And so I feel like that's uh, one of the main reasons people push away from the topic mm-hmm. because it's like, oh, 
I don't want to talk about that. Yeah. I don't want to talk about yeah. what are some of the signs of, of knowing that you might be racist, or I don't want to talk about anything that makes me uncomfortable, that someone else may be feeling pain that you're not feeling. Mm -hmm. And that we can both be in the same world, mm -hmm. around the same community, and you have a totally different experience mm -hmm. than me. It's just like uh, two children that grow up in a parent's home and one child has a bad experience and the other child mm -hmm. feels like they were super loved on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's like that one child who was super loved on is upset with the child that says, yeah. you know what, I had a horrible experience. Mm -hmm. Mama and daddy did this to me. Mm -hmm. So it's like that even within society, I feel like sometimes you can love you know, America so much or love the world so much that you say, no, you know, I'm being treated fairly. What mm -hmm. is your problem? Yeah, right. So like, I don't want you to speak up and say, no, um, something is wrong yeah. because I'm not experiencing that. Yeah. You're so taking you away from possibly, my experience. Yeah. You couldn't possibly be experiencing that because I'm not experiencing right, that. Right. So for me, um, it's, it's just a... It's a lot of things, but then I feel like that's one of the main reasons mm -hmm. why people just don't want to acknowledge. I think that we so easily separate ourselves from sin. You know, we've all been taught that yeah. pre prejudice is a terrible thing. Prejudice mm -hmm. is bad. Well, if it's bad, then I'm not that. When of the course. truth is, every single person has prejudice. And to lie about that is to lie about that. We all have prejudice. and But because I'm not bad, we start denying it and we become mm -hmm. defensive instead. And unchecked prejudices, because we're not checking them because they're bad and we're not mm -hmm. bad, an unchecked prejudice turns to discrimination. It just That's gets true. It just gets yeah. worse. And so... Um, Racism is so so ugly and and so awful. We bury it instead of unearth it. That's true. You know, we just bury it. We bury yeah. it. We bury it. And buried things yeah. stink. Yes, it does. <laughs> it just gets worse. You know, does. and so a, a barrier is that we don't know what's what. It's like that's true. You don't want to be called a racist. I'm not a racist. Mm -hmm. I'm not that. I haven't done these things. What we were talking mm -hmm. about a little bit earlier. I haven't done this. I haven't done that. I've never said this. You know, mm -hmm. so I'm not a racist. When what racism really is, mm -hmm. is it's when um, discrimination or prejudices have power behind mm -hmm. them. So you, there's, there's um, you know, like institutional power or there's legal authority mm -hmm. behind it. You know, mm -hmm. so now we have this systemic problem of racism. Mm -hmm. But if we're denying that we even have prejudice... We can't ever get to prejudice, discrimination, racism. We've stopped far too soon just to acknowledge what's really going on all in a desire to stay nice. No, I'm yeah, nice. Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's true. Like we're protecting ourselves. That's true. When the truth is, is that this thing exists and causes a great deal of harm. It does. And then there's white privilege. I mean, <laughs> it's, you know... That's just a whole nother taboo subject. I know growing up, uh, people always told me, Lisa, you know, if you, you know, get a degree, if you get educated, if you go to school, they're like, you're going to make, you know, way more money than somebody else who's less educated. But then um, I began to realize that sometimes it's not even about an African-American going to school or an African-American um, receiving like a degree because sometimes you're fighting so hard to get past uh, how you're viewed in society um, and you feel like you have this uh, the shorter end of the stick 
um, because people tend to offer jobs to somebody that um, looks more like them or somebody that's white. And so for me, I know leaving school, um, I would apply um, for different positions. And I had friends who would tell me, yeah, I have my father, he, um, he knows such and such, and he got me this job. And so I would just, um, in the back of my head, I would be like, I know they told me that I needed this degree, or I needed training, or I needed this. And then I would realize that um, there is something wrong within the system. There is white privilege. There is uh, something within society that makes people um, treat one group better than they treat another group. And so for me, I realized, uh, even as a young woman, that it doesn't matter if you have degrees. It doesn't matter if your um, your father has degrees or your parents are educated. Sometimes your fight just looks different because the color of your skin. Mm-hmm. It's a scary subject for a lot of people to talk about. The truth is, sometimes you are given advantages or you have um, just your your setup is better in life mm-hmm. because of your skin color or because. Uh, who you know, and so... Or because boss looks more yeah. like you. Or, yes, yes. <laughs> um, it, and it is. It's impossible to talk about race um, without addressing privilege. We have to talk yes. about privilege, and people are so averse to hearing yes. that they have privilege because they think it's a suggestion that life has been easy for them, and life yeah. is never easy. No, it's Life not. is never easy for anyone, and that's mm-hmm. not what anyone's saying by saying that there's privilege. Mm-hmm. Privilege is really just the power of normal. Yeah. You know, what majority culture decides what's normal. Majority culture decides what's beautiful. Majority culture decides um, what's valuable. That's true. Um, And so if majority culture is making all these decisions and you're not in majority culture, that's privilege. It's it's not an insult to the white person to have it. But with it comes responsibility. You don't no one's asking you to feel guilty about it. They're Mm -hmm. asking you to be responsible with it. Yes. And so I remember a lot of times just uh, looking through magazines where they say um, the the world's 100 most beautiful women mm-hmm. and not seeing African-American women or just seeing the last one, you know, or the first one before they get to, you know, the top one would be one African-American uh-huh. woman. And I, would, I remember always thinking, even as a young girl, uh, why are there not any you know, Disney black princesses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when we finally got Tiana, I was just like, really? We get one and then they give her nappy Afro puffs. We all have, <laughs> we all have to have the nappy Afro hair. And all, all African-Americans don't have nappy hair. And so for me, it's, it's, it's almost like I had to, um, you know, my mom even taught me, even as a little girl growing up and when you could uh, couldn't even find African-American dolls at that time. You had to fight to find an African-American doll. But um, she had to tell me, your skin is beautiful. I'm going to mm. find you a baby doll that looks mm. like you. Mm-hmm. I'm going to find you. You know, you're constantly trying to, like, reassure and reaffirm your children. Your your skin color is beautiful. And, and God made you. And, and God, when he made you, he said it was good. Mm-hmm. And so for me... Um, just knowing that our our fight in life is different, but 
that's the fight that God gave us. You know what I'm saying? He did. He know what he he knows what he was doing. He knew what he was doing. <laughs> and so for me, um, it is. It's a journey in life that you constantly have to remind yourself who you are because you're not gonna get that uh, confirmation sometimes mm-hmm. or affirmation from somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like you have to know and you have to build up your own confidence mm-hmm. to say that, you know, I know who I am and I'm glad who God has made me to be. You have to know that at the end of the day, God opens doors that no man can shut. Mm. I feel, you know, we haven't known each other that long, but yeah. in walking with, I mean, a year, something like that, but in, in walking with you in that short amount of time, you have shared with me many mm-hmm. microaggressions that you experience on the daily. Yeah. Um, and they have been, I'm, I'm ashamed to say that they've been shocking to me, but they yeah. have been shocking. Yeah. What is a stereotype that you feel like you're always having to overcome? All black women are angry. Another stereotype um, and misconceived notion about African Americans is that we we steal. You've told me no less than like five store stories. I know, right? You in the store. I'm constantly. And, I think it's like a target on my back. Stores. But um, I remember a time I was in a store in College Station, and I had purchased um, some tote bags, and I was getting ready to have them monogram for Christmas. And one of the ladies, uh, she embroidered the bags for me. Um, she forgot to reset her machine on the, her embroidery machine. So when she embroidered the bags, the embroidery was, was very small. So when I took the bag, um, I was looking at the bag and I, I let her know um, that I wasn't happy with the bag. I said it in a nice way. I let her know I wasn't happy. And I was trying to um, figure out what happened with the bags and why Why was the monogram so small. And she had uh, quickly, she got offended. She got upset. And she pretty much uh, started telling, she, she asked me, do you even have a job? And so... She went to a place of offense because she was trying to insinuate and imply that I was trying to hustle her or trying to get over on her or trying to get something free out of her um, because I was not happy with the bag. So she was trying to imply you're just trying to get something for free. And so she automatically just started talking to me in a derogatory way which did upset me, but then it's frustrating for people to put you in a position where they say ugly, rude things to you, and then they expect you to reply back in a nice way. Mm -hmm. Um, To be labeled as aggressive is uh, very... It's frustrating because it makes you feel as though you can't express yourself. Right. It's okay for other people to be upset. And mm-hmm. they can, I mean, they can express themselves a certain way. Mm-hmm. And they can say, I don't like this. Mm-hmm. But if you say, I don't like this, then it's, oh, oh my goodness, she's being uh, irate. She's right. being, um, you know, she doesn't know how to act. She's ghetto. Mm-hmm. And so for me to always have that label on my head, mm-hmm. I always have that in the back of my mind mm-hmm. when I'm handling people. Mm-hmm. So I always feel like I can't express myself the way I want to right. because then people are, oh, I'm going to call the police or I'm going to do this. Um I had another time I was in a store uh, and I remember um, stopping at a Nike outlet 
and a lady had messed up my receipt um, and she gave me the wrong amount of change back. And I was trying to explain everything to her. I was like taking her through the receipt and she got mad at me and she was like, uh, I know what I'm talking about. No, you're not supposed to get this much back. I, I asked her, could I speak to a manager? And she was like, I am the manager. And so she went ahead, she was going on and on uh, and she tried to show out in front of everybody in the store. So she, I was not talking to her in a derogatory way. We were having a regular conversation. My voice was calm. My voice was low. And she proceeded to tell me I, and said it out loud. I will call the police on you. And it was for no apparent reason at all. I was just having a conversation. It was a disagreement, but it wasn't a reason to say I'm going to call the police. So she like tried to make a scene in front of everybody. Mm -hmm. Then it's like, I'm going to pick at you, pick at you, pick at you till I make you say something or do something. And I, I always pray and ask God, Lord, don't allow me to be in a position where I give somebody else my power, power to control the way my emotions, how I respond to somebody. Yeah. Because some people, they do like pick at you, pick at you. And in that uh, moment, um, I had my daughter with me and she began to cry mm. um, because she could tell something was going on and she didn't understand it, but she knew that it was a situation. And I was like, you know what? I'm going. I'm getting ready to just let her have this moment to herself. I'm not going to say anything irate. And then I got my receipt and I left the oh, store gosh, because I'm it was livid. embarrassing more than I am anything. So sorry. Because it's that just it's frustrating terrible. when when people try to make other people view you a certain Absolutely. way. So they like try to call you out. Like yes. it's a scene, you all. I'm getting ready to call the police. Uh -huh. And it's like, no, you don't have a reason to call the police. I know how to communicate to you. I know how to explain <sighs> things to you, but the thing was it was just something simple simple yeah. as looking at a receipt yeah. looking at something and having a disagreement that escalated into something else people automatically see you a certain way mm -hmm. when you walk in a room mm -hmm. but that's not even who you are mm -hmm. they just automatically assume this is because she's black I know she's angry I know she's aggressive I know that she's like this you know as as I'm listening and I have chills all over and I'm fuming and I'm so sorry that yeah. all of that happened how I feel, how I'm feeling right now is that I want to be there. Yeah. I want to be there. Yeah. And I want to do more than push like on Facebook yeah. on a post that's about racial reconciliation. Yeah. I want to do more than watch the movie I'm supposed to watch. Yeah. I want to act. I yeah. want, this is more than performative allyship. Mm -hmm. I want to link elbows with you and yeah. I want to place myself in that store with you and I want yeah. to speak up on your behalf yeah. or just stand behind you and, and let you do the talking and, yeah. you know, and just, you know, this is not, this is simply not okay. Yeah. Um, I feel like we right now we're living in a culture that is far more committed to colorblindness mm -hmm. than to real racial equality. We just want to pretend that this, you know, I guess this has kind of kind of come out a lot, but I feel yeah. like that's what Dr. King meant by the white moderate. Yes. The white moderate is more committed to colorblindness. You know, I, I don't do that. I have never used that word. Oh, I have yeah. never, you know, again. Oh, yeah. And so, but in that way, yeah, are you know, are you part of the problem? Maybe not, but mm -hmm. you're certainly not part of the solution. Yeah. And when we've come from you know, doing bare minimum isn't enough, mm -hmm. you know, just not being part of the problem. It's not enough. We have to be part yeah. of the solution. And so yeah. being, so standing by while this is happening to you in a Nike mm -hmm. outlet store, it's not enough. 
Oh, yeah. We yeah. need to step up. You need to act. We yeah. need to do yeah. something. As a white person in the Nike outlet with you, what's mm-hmm. the best response? When tensions are flaring like that, it's hard to know exactly what to do. But I feel like even maybe somebody stepping in to say, how can I help or how can mm-hmm. I assist? Um Maybe that would have helped the situation. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Or trying to figure out uh, what is the problem. Um, how can we bring somebody else over here to understand the mm-hmm. receipt? Because somebody who somebody else who worked there, although she was a manager, could have came over and said, "Let me help assist you, and let's try to figure this out together. Yeah. Like, let's see what the problem is." Yeah. And so I feel like maybe the employees could have helped more than yeah. the customers uh-huh. because the customers were uh-huh. like confused. Uh-huh. I turned around and I was just like shocked she Ugh, said this because it's, it's embarrassing. It's so of course because I was like, why? Why would you do that to me? I have a daughter. I have children. Like in Ugh. the store, like they're standing right here. You gonna let them drag me out for a receipt? Ugh. And although I wanted to just leave and uh, walk away from the situation, yeah. it's not also, about a receipt anymore. Yes, it wasn't about a receipt. Um, let's switch gears a little bit. You and I have had a lot of conversations about um, just faith expression and you okay. always feeling like yeah. you need to kind of tone down. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, and I, you know, as that's really kind of a common theme, like you, you feel like you have to tone down how you oh, talk yeah. to certain people in public. You that's feel like true. you need to tone down. Um, you know, the, you're very comfortable with white worship, but oh, yeah. you'd probably rather, <laughs> you know, do something that's a little more authentic to you. So let's talk about multi-ethnic churches really quick. Cause I have a okay. question. So worshiping together as a diverse group of believers, you know, like the Bible tells us, all tribes, all tongues, all nations. Oh, yeah. That sounds like a really beautiful witness it to is. God's unity in diversity. Yeah. And so it seems natural, like a logical push would be, well, then let's have multi-ethnic churches. Mm-hmm. Um, but not everyone agrees that we're necessarily called to this. There are some activists even that say that's racist because... The whole reason they're segregated in the first place is because y'all wouldn't let us worship with you. And so now everybody's pushing for these multi-ethnic churches. Thank you, but no, thank you. You know, so do you, what, what's your opinion? No, me knowing this about you, that you have, um, a more celebratory, louder faith expression Mm -hmm. and yet worship in white spaces. I'm really curious to know, do you think that multi-ethnic churches, is it a biblical mandate? Is it a glimpse of heaven? Is it too big of a sacrifice? Okay. What do you think? I would say it's a glimpse of heaven. Hmm. Because if we if we think we're going to enter into heaven and only see our own our type of worship, mm-hmm. we're going to be surprised. Hmm. I feel like um I, I keep going back from the time I left Dallas to going to Branson, Missouri. Mm-hmm. That was the cultural shift for me because mm-hmm. I didn't even know quiet churches existed and I'm not trying to be funny I just didn't know quiet worshipers existed Uh Uh and so for me uh like just going from church to church and always entering into sanctuaries where um, worship was quiet and worship was subtle and worship was uh, calm Mm -hmm. I wasn't used to those atmospheres Mm -hmm. and so for me it was a, a shock it was different um but um, are you wanting to shake people awake 
Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I, I went in there like confused. Like, what what's going on? Like, what are we doing? Because I was trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. I've never, I had never been in a church prior to that that was quiet. Mm-hmm. Because you got to remember, I came from Dallas. I came from the south side of Dallas. Every church I went to, people were running in churches. They were on rolling on the floors. <laughs> they were like screaming, thank you, Jesus. They were praising God. They were... Um, just their expression of praise is totally different. Allison, it was uh, a wrestle in my in mm-hmm. my walk with God because mm-hmm. I cried many nights mm-hmm. leaving church. Mm-hmm. Like, Lord, you, you allowed me to um, come up a certain way. You allowed me to see certain things ministry-wise. Um, why am I in this place where I feel like I'm suppressed, mm-hmm. like my spirit is suppressed? Mm-hmm. I can't be free. For me, it's a wrestle. Um Um, Allison, because you have multi-ethnic churches, which can mean that you have African uh, one or or some African Americans in your church or in your body, but then um, are you embracing their culture? Because you can you can be okay with people coming in, but you want them to assimilate to what you're doing, absolutely, and your style of doing things. So to have a multi-ethnic church. I'm not really pushing for multi-ethnic. I'm more pushing for multicultural churches because you are embracing somebody else's culture Mm. and their way of doing things. And you're encouraging their culture and saying, you know what, I'm embracing it so much. I want to make some part of your culture a part of our culture. So I've been in a lot of churches where I'm like, it's me, my family, and, and my family is seven of us, so we can make a whole church multi-ethnic because <laughs> we're so big, we can walk in a room and they can say, if y'all join, we got enough. <laughs> and they they like, we got a multi-ethnic church, y'all, because there's seven of them in here. And so for me, it's not really about being multi-ethnic because I'm in the room. It's about somebody embracing my culture Absolutely. enough to say, yes. I want some part of your radical nature. I want some part of your, you know, spice or to say, I embrace you so much. I want you to walk in this room and know that you are so loved. We want somebody on our praise and worship team that loves to dance around, that Mm -hmm. loves to um, just be radical for Mm -hmm. Christ. And so for me, um, multicultural to me is more impactful for me to say, I'm looking for something that's multicultural because I've been in so many places where I feel like I'm accepted. They're okay with me coming in. But then it's like, we need you to conform to this space. I need you to come in and I need you to do what we do. That's right. And when you do what we do, we like you. And we're okay with you being here. But then when you come in trying to disrupt what we doing Mm -hmm. and you say, well, I don't want to do it this way. I want to do it another way. Then it's, oh, well, we don't really need you here because this is the way we like to do stuff. And so for me, it's like you don't know one gospel song that you can sing it your way and help me like, you know, be able to join in and be able to feel like I'm a part of something. Mm -hmm. And I actually know the song. Mm -hmm. So like it shocks me when I finally hear a song and it's like, oh, I know that one. (laughs) I can sing that one. 
It's saying sometimes you want to feel so loved that you know somebody is working hard yes. to like say, I want to incorporate want, yes. who you Not are. Not just invite you, but include I, you. Thank you. <laughs> I want you to feel welcome and I want yeah. you to know that we're embracing your culture. Mm-hmm. We want you to feel a part of our mm-hmm. ministry. It's not saying this is bad and this is good. It's just saying to bring those those things together and say let's bring what we both love together and yes. merge them yes. that's what's complicated right because it somebody does. gotta it be willing hard. to let something exactly go. Yes. and nobody is willing to let no part of their culture and the way that they were raised right. go he's taking me through a season where he's challenging me to to be okay with um, seeing something different, mm-hmm. but also not losing who he called me to be in the spirit, which mm-hmm. is a praiser, which is a mm-hmm. warrior in the spirit. It's it's a challenge to have multicultural churches. Um, people have to be willing to let go of what's comfortable. What's, yeah, exactly. Yes. What's um, because you're, it does sound hard, but yeah. I think that maybe it should be. It is. I think that that it is, we yeah. are so trained to think that hard means bad. Yeah. And easy means good, mm-hmm. and that's hardly ever true. And as I'm listening. Yeah. You know, to your vision, which I think is beautiful, and I do think it's a glimpse of heaven. It sounds to me like we just might have to die to ourselves. Oh yeah, that's really what <laughs> I that mean, is. You know, like that's what I that think is. that this is a pointer that not everything's about us, not everything's that's about true. our comfort. That's true. And you know, I as I've heard people, you know, grumble about this, or, or or when a project is happening and people are trying to make it work, it's like majority culture is saying this is a distraction. Yes. And then minority culture is saying, I feel like a token. And then it's the pastor that ends up kind of bearing the brunt of all of this, you know, like, you know, what do we do? But the diversity needs to be beyond just optics. Yes. You know, like just how it looks like you're talking about your family showing up and people being like, we did it. (laughs) It needs to be beyond optics. I mean, this should be pushing into deeper conversations. This should be about actions. It's, it's not about how it's about why it's like getting underneath Mm -hmm. the thing of why aren't we doing this anyway? You know? Yeah. yeah. Well, I love your vision. Um, Lisa, this has been a great conversation. And I, I there's there's lots more to come. Will you come back? Yes, of course. <laughs> we yeah, have lots more things to talk about. Oh, yeah. We have lots to talk about. Especially as the Lord continues to move with you. I, yes. I just feel like you are on the brink of so many um, important projects. And I'm really yeah. excited that I get to come along and watch and help. and. I've been like insisting to be your Aaron, um, holding up your Moses arms. <laughs> yeah, you know I love you so much, Allison. I thank God for you. I thank God for our group, and um, yeah. I know that God has great things for us. So yes. thank you for having me. Thanks, Lisa. I appreciate it. Love you. Love you too. I've never met anyone like Mary. Well, technically, I've never met Mary. You see we're internet friends, but don't let that fool you. This internet connection runs deep. Mary is so many things all at the same time. With one sentence, she can make me laugh, cry, think, and deeply, deeply feel. There's just something about Mary. You'll see. When I was little, before the advent of caller ID, I used to love to answer the phone. I remember answering one morning to hear the caller ask, is this Mrs. Chewy's daughter? Yes, I said eagerly. Well, your mother's a witch, they said. Only they said witch with a B. And they hung up. Who was that? My mom asked. One of your students wanted me to know that you're a a witch with a B, I said. My mom could tell I was upset by the call. She laughed. 
My parents both taught in the inner city, and their students were tough. The teachers had to be equally tough to survive. Mary, my mom said, let me tell you a story. So she sat me down and told me the story of one day in her classroom when she called a student out for cheating. You're a racist, he yelled at her. From the back of the room, another student yelled, Nah, Mrs. Jewy's not a racist. She's a witch with a bee to everyone. I laughed at the story, and my mom was clearly proud of the idea that she was, in essence, colorblind. For the 70s, that was the gold standard. You can treat everyone the same, whether it's with sickening sweetness or whether you're a witch with a bee. But I feel like perhaps treating racism is like treating a wound. The first rule in medicine, first do no harm, is like being colorblind. But after you do no harm, you must address the wound, and that requires asking questions to find out what hurts and how badly. It requires a listening silence that is open to all participants. I don't have any spectacular insight on how to achieve racial reconciliation. What I do know is that we must go beyond our previous standard of simply being colorblind and start listening to what hurts. Robin D'Angelo, author of White Fragility, says this, Addressing racism makes many white people feel anger, fear, and guilt, which leads to denial, minimization, and defensiveness, even though racism inevitably touches everyone. This is an excerpt from an opinion piece she wrote for NBC News. She says this, As a product of my culture, my racial illiteracy has rested on a simplistic definition of a racist, which is an individual who consciously does not like people based on race and is intentionally hurtful to them. Based on this definition, racists are purposely mean. It follows that nice people with good intentions who are friendly to people of a different race cannot be racist. Not only does this definition hide the structural nature of racism, it also enables self-delusion. If I am a nice person with good intentions, I am free of all racial bias and cannot participate in racism. Within this limited paradigm, to simply suggest that as a white person, my race has meaning and grants unearned advantage, much less to suggest that I have absorbed racist messages which may cause me to behave in racist ways, consciously or not, well, that's deeply disconcerting. The mainstream definition of a racist set me up beautifully to not only deny any impact of racial socialization, but also to receive any suggestion of racially problematic behavior as a personal blow, a questioning of my very moral character. Of course, I would take Ombrage, feel hurt, attacked, misunderstood. And this is what I term white fragility. Yet, Regardless of my intentions, these defensive reactions, they only protect the racial status quo. Those of us who profess to believe in racial equality have to challenge our understanding of racism in ways that don't uphold it. We also need to build our skills and stamina for the racial discomfort engendered by a new paradigm. While I was raised to see myself as somehow innocent of race, a lifetime of socialization as a white person does provide me insight into the ways my race shapes my frameworks, assumptions, and responses, which in turn shape my identity, community, and politics. I can speak as an insider to my socialization into whiteness. The messages of superiority I have received, patterns I have developed, advantages I enjoy, and the personal and institutional challenges I face when seeking to counter racism. I am not, in fact, innocent of race. Further, people of color have been providing us with the feedback we need for centuries, but our biases have prevented us from granting legitimacy to their voices. 
Those same biases make us more receptive to the information when we hear it from other white people. This makes it all the more critical that white people use our positions to break with white solidarity and hold one another accountable. There are, of course, inherent dilemmas when white people step up to address racism. Mainstream society has not prepared most of us to engage across race in an informed and thoughtful way. Given this, even those of us who have worked long and hard to develop racial literacy are all too often clumsy and hurtful. We tend to center ourselves instead of stepping back and listening more, proceeding with humility. Still, we don't gain literacy by studying alone. We gain fluency through practice. All of us have a part to play, but the ultimate responsibility for addressing racism lies with those who control the institutions, white people. Jackie Robinson couldn't have broken the color barrier on his own. He played baseball because white people allowed him to. If I don't understand racism as a deeply embedded system that I have been shaped by and participate in, my inaction will uphold it. In other words, as long as whiteness remains unnamed, it will continue to reproduce racial inequality. To decenter whiteness, it must be centered differently in ways that expose its strategies so that we can challenge them. Because the question of whether I have been shaped by and participate in the forces of racism is not a question of if, but of how. Dear God and Father of us all, you made all nations and tribes and tongues of the world in order for us to be a family to come together and worship you. And then you gave us your son who taught us how to love one another perfectly. Increase among us God's sympathy and tolerance and goodwill for one another. Help us to appreciate the many gifts that other believers in our lives bring to us. Help us to see all people as people that you dearly love and for whom Christ died. Thank you, God, for the astonishing variety that we have around us. Give us bravery and courage to widen our circles of friendship. Show us your presence in those who differ from us. And do all of those things, God, please, until our knowledge of your love is made perfect. Thank you, God, for the prophets among us and their transcendent voices that cry out for justice and mercy. Open our ears, God. Help us to follow the truth that they speak. Save us from injustice that secures our own well-being. The prophets, God, speaking on your behalf, give them the fire of a lion and the tenderness of a lamb. Give them love for the people they speak to. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Please break our hearts for what breaks yours. In Jesus' most holy name, amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And for this episode, a special thank you to Lisa McKenzie. Thank you to Pamela Anthony Cutright and Chen Redfield for music. Thank you to Kristen Kelly and Mary Bishop. For more of Mary's writing, head to madeforordinarytime.wordpress.com. Sinner Saint Sister now has a Patreon page. Please consider supporting Sinner Saint Sister by searching for Allison Sullivan on patreon.com. Many episodes are now only available for patrons. Send us your questions at sinnersaintsister at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at Allison M. Sully. Don't forget to review, like, and subscribe, and tune in next week.